Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. This week we have been bombarded with images of the aftermath of Katrina and the flooding of New Orleans. It is being called the greatest natural catastrophe and disaster that our nation has ever experienced. As you're watching those scenes as I was this past week and you see the devastation and you see the heartache and you hear of the dead bodies floating in the water and you see some of the dead bodies laying on the street or at the convention center, we cannot help but as Christians to wonder why. God, what's going on? God, where are you? Are you saying something? It just doesn't make sense. Such destruction and such uh, horror, such pain and human agony. But it doesn't take a national disaster to bring those questions. Those questions come up when we have personal disasters as well. Personal catastrophes. And we say, Lord, why? And what I want you to realize is that when we encounter those personal and national disasters, what we need more than anything is we need to see our God. We don't need the answer to our question. Why? What we need is to have a fresh revelation of our God. Anytime a person is going through catastrophic circumstances and tragedies and personal disaster, what they need more than anything is to see God. Moses understood this. In our passage today, turn to Exodus chapter 34. Moses was in the midst of what I think was both a personal crisis and a national crisis, bordering on a national disaster as the likes the nation of Israel had never known. Now think for a moment what Moses must have been going through in our passage and what leads up to our passage. Moses is raised in Pharaoh's court. He must have heard from his mother who nursed him as an infant and helped raise him that he was not an Egyptian, but he was an Israelite. He was a Hebrew. And he must have sensed within him some personal destiny of being one who would be called to deliver his fellow Hebrews. Because when he became older, as a young man, he saw an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew slave. And he came to the aid of this Hebrew slave and killed the Egyptian. And then as you know, it came out in just a little while that he had killed this Egyptian, and therefore he had to flee the country. And he went to the wilderness of Midian and was there for 40 years as a shepherd. And finally God comes to him in the burning bush and says, Moses, i got a job for you. I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to lead my people out of their bondage to Pharaoh. 
And so Moses goes back, and, and you know what he puts up with? The people don't understand, and they get mad with him because things get worse for them under Pharaoh when Moses tries to deliver them. And then Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let them go. And he says, no. And then Moses does a, a plague. And then he goes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, well, okay. And then before he can get them out, Pharaoh changes his mind, and Moses goes back again, and there's another plague. And this episode gets repeated for ten times. Finally, Pharaoh agrees to let the people go. And so Moses leads them out, some suggest probably three million or more, and they finally get out of the country and they get to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh again has changed his mind and he goes after them with his army. And they come to the Red Sea, and what do the people do? They start griping and complaining. Moses, why would you bring us out here? We're just going to die out here. It would have been better to have died in Egypt. And then God miraculously moves in, divides the Red Sea, they go through, and then they have a big party on the other side, praising God. A couple of days later, they run out of water. What do they do? They start complaining and moaning and groaning again, wanting to stone Moses and Aaron. Then finally they make their way to Mount Sinai. And God comes down on Mount Sinai in in Tremendous manifestations of His glory with smoke and fire on the mountain and and the mountain is quaking. And God calls Moses up on the mountain and He goes up and God gives them His Ten Commandments and He establishes a covenant with these people. And these people say, whatever God says, we'll do it. And they establish the covenant. And then Moses heads back up the mountain again to get further instructions. And what do the people do? Immediately, they make a golden calf. They begin to violate the first and second commandments and worship this golden calf and call it Yahweh. And Moses comes down and he hears his noise and God says the people have run wild. They are obstinate. They are an evil people. I'm not going to go with them. If I do, I'll kill them. Now, Moses' world is pretty much collapsed, folks. He spent all this time and effort getting these folks out of Egypt Finally had a covenant made with them. And what did they do right after they made the covenant? They go and break it. And God says, I'm through with them. I'm not going up with them. If I do, they're such a stubborn and obstinate people. I'll kill them. And Moses says, God, you've got to go. If you don't go with us, we're no different than anybody else. Moses realized, apart from the presence of God, Israel was no different than any other nation. Just like the church is no different from any other organization if we don't have the presence of God. We're no different from the Kiwanis, from the Lions Club, from any other club unless we have the presence of God. God finally says, okay, I'll go. And Moses says, God, I've got to see you in this personal tragedy, in this national disaster. Moses says, God, I want to see you. I've got to get my bearings. I don't understand what's going on. I thought I've done everything you told me to do. And the people are just rebelling and, and, and they're obstinate and, and they don't want to go and you don't want to go with us. And so in chapter 33, Moses says in verse 18, then Moses said, I pray you show me your glory. God, I've got to see you in this situation. And when we're encountering personal dis- disaster and national tragedy, we need to see God. That's what we need more than anything. More than answer to our questions of why and, and how, we need to see God. Moses says, show me your essential nature. Show me your glory. 
That was his request. And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But He said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Moses wanted to see God's essential glory. He wanted to see the flashing The visions. I think he wanted to say, hey God, I want to make sure you are really with us. Man, you said you'd go with us, but I remember back at Sinai when you first made the covenant. Man, you were there with lightning and thunder and trembling of the mountain and the fire. Show me again that you're still with us. Let me see the glory again. Let me see the vision. Let me see the fire, the thunder, the earthquake. But notice, What God gives Moses is His Word. He says in verse 19, I will pass before you and proclaim the name of the Lord. Now the name of God represents His person. God is revealed primarily through His names. Here God tells Moses He will proclaim His person, His nature to Moses. There's no mention of Moses seeing anything visible. He only gets God's Word. There's a lesson for us in this. When we're going through tragedies and and disasters in our personal life, we tend to want to see miracles. God, show me a miracle. God, show me You're here. Give me a vision. Give me flashes of Your glory. God says, I've got something better for you. I've given you the Word. I've already given you what you need. And that's my Word. You see, it is in the Word of God that we meet God. It's not in visions. It's not in miracles that God has primarily revealed Himself throughout history. It's in His Word that He has revealed Himself to His people. First, He has revealed Himself in His written Word. When Jesus had resurrected and two of His disciples were walking on the road to Emmaus, And they could not understand what had happened. Their lives had crumbled before their eyes. This one that they had left everything and followed, certain he was going to set up his kingdom. And he was going to rule and reign. He was the Messiah. And he had been crucified and died. Everything they had banked their life on for two years was gone. He was dead. Buried. It was over. Their hopes were dashed. And Luke tells us that Jesus came up to them. They didn't know who He was. And He began to speak to them. And verse 27 of Luke 24 says, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. What did they need in their time of crisis? They needed to see Jesus. But before Jesus revealed Himself to them in His person, what did He do? He revealed Himself to them in the Word. He went back to the Word of God and He said, let me explain to you the things concerning the Messiah. He showed them the written Word. Because that is the primary way we see God. In His Word. But we also see God revealed in His living Word. 
Jesus in His prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before His crucifixion, He prays, And I have made Your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which You loved me may be in them and I in them. What's Jesus saying? He said, I have made Your name known to them. How did He make it known? He lived it. This is why He could tell the disciple, look, who said to Him, just show us God. Now you see, the disciples understood the importance. Jesus said to them over in John 14, man, I'm about to leave you. Don't let your heart be troubled, but I'm about to go. And where I go, you can't follow. And what did that disciple say? Jesus, show us the Father. In other words, He knew, man, things are falling apart if we can just see God. What did Jesus say to him? He says, don't you understand? If you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. I am the visible manifestation of the invisible God. God revealed Himself not only through His written Word, but through the living Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we want to see God, don't look for miracles and visions. Don't look for answers to your questions, but look in the Word. And say, God, show me the Word. Show me Yourself in Your words. Now, there's a preparation to be involved in seeing God. And we're back in Exodus chapter 34. Now, if you're going to see God, you've got to make preparations. And the main preparation is obedience. That's right. You cannot live a life in disobedience to the Word of God and think God's going to come and show Himself to you. I think we have this clearly given to us in the first four verses of Exodus 34. Now the Lord said to Moses, and this is after God had said, Moses said, show me your glory. Cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones. You remember he had dashed and crushed the former ones and had the Ten Commandments on them because of the people had broken the covenant. And I will write on the tablets the words which were on the former tablets which you shattered. So be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of the mountain. Those were the commands. Get the stone tablets early in the morning, come up. Notice verse 4. So he, Moses, cut out two stone tablets like the former ones, And Moses rose up early in the morning. And he went up to Mount Sinai, and the writer adds, as the Lord had commanded him. And he took two stone tablets in his hand. God wanted us to see Moses' preparation for seeing God was obedience. You and I want to see God, we need to be obedient. Jesus said the same thing in John 14. Look at what he says. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and look at this, and I will disclose myself to him. Who is it that Jesus promised he would reveal himself to, that he would disclose and show himself to? The one who has his commandments and obeys them. Because His obedience shows His love for God. You want to see God in your personal tragedy, in your disaster? You need to be obedient. We need to be living obedient lives to the Word of God. No known sin in our lives. 
No known disobedience in our lives. But we're walking by His grace, as far as we know, in obedience to Him. Having been obedient, we read in verse 5, Then the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with Him as He called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of Him and proclaimed. This is the greatest single revelation of God that we have anywhere in the Old Testament. It is unsurpassed in any other place in the Old Testament. And this passage is quoted several times throughout the Old Testament. We saw it last week in Psalm 145. Because Israel recognized this was the greatest single revelation of the nature of God and who God is. Now if you go up to most people and say, tell me about the God of the Old Testament. They'll say, oh, He was a God of wrath. He was a God of judgment. He was a God of the law. The God of the New Testament is a God of grace. But look at how God reveals Himself. Where do you see judgment? Where do you see law? What does God say? And the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. All of that, and he's never mentioned judgment yet. Then, after talking about His love and forgiveness and grace, then He says, Yet He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worshipped. We need to see God. The first thing that God does is He reveals Himself through His names. He calls Himself... Yahweh. Your translation probably has the term Lord in all caps. In the New American Standard translation and in many others, when the Hebrew word is Yahweh, which was the name that God presented Himself to Moses with in the burning bush, it's usually Lord in caps. And we've talked about the name Yahweh, but I want to just review that for you. God is saying that He, the God of Israel, whose proper name is Yahweh. That's the only proper name God gives of Himself. That is His name forever. Now what Yahweh is, is a form of the Hebrew verb to be. And basically God is proclaiming His self-existence. His eternal unchangeableness. God is saying, as I always was, I always am, and I always shall be. He is unchangeable. God is telling Moses, what I'm about to show you about myself has always been true, Moses. And it is true right now, and it shall always be true throughout eternity. Yahweh, the Lord. I am forever the same, I change not. I have always been compassionate, I am compassionate now, and I will always be compassionate. And then the second name, he says, Yahweh El, the Lord God. Now, El is short for Elohim. 
which again God shows Himself, Elohim, as the covenant God. The God who is willing to enter into a covenant relationship with man. Now that is a mystery above all mysteries that the sovereign God of the universe would be willing to bind Himself to human beings with promises and a covenant. But He does. And when He presents Himself as Yahweh El, the Lord God, He is saying, I am the God who is absolutely trustworthy, infinitely faithful, and I will promise and keep my promise to my people. Our relationship must be based on trust. God means what He says and He has the power to perform His Word. He is a strong covenant-keeping God. Therefore, God begins this revelation of Himself by declaring His unchangeableness and His absolute truthfulness. That He is the only God who binds Himself to men in covenants and promises. And then God reveals Himself through His nature. After revealing Himself through His names, He reveals Himself through His nature. We will not finish these today, but we shall begin. He goes on to say, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate. The word compassionate carries the idea of tender love. It means to love deeply. It's the love of a superior for an inferior. Now we can see the tenderness and depth of this love because the root word for the Hebrew word compassion is the root word for the Hebrew word for womb. A mother's womb. This is a mother's love. This is the tender, compassionate love of a mother. God picks up on this when He says to Israel in Isaiah 49, He says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion, same word, on the son of her womb? The root word that compassion comes from. He said, have you, Can you imagine a thing? You and I saw this past week mothers who were separated from their babies not knowing where their babies were. There's this one lady whose baby was born early and only two weeks old and it was in the NICU unit and it was evacuated and she was not there and she didn't know where her child was. Can you imagine, mothers, that feeling of not knowing where your child was or if it was okay? God says, can a mother forget her nursing child? But He says, even though this may happen, I will never forget you. He says this, Wild an idea is it that a mother might forget her nursing child? He said, even though that is so unlikely to happen, even if it did, God said, I'll never forget you. I will never fail to have a love and compassion for you. In Psalm 103, God relates His compassion to fathers. The same word used here. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. You see, the first thing God reveals to us is His tender love for us. Not His wrath. Not His judgment. But His tender love. His compassion. The God of the Old Testament is no different than the God of the New Testament. 
God sent the Israelites into exile in Babylon because of their continual, persistent disobedience and idolatry. And when the people finally came back, they had a time of of national repentance. They had a time of confessing the sins of their forefathers and their nation because they knew they needed to get themselves right with God. And what we see is that God comes before them and they realize that they must look to God's compassion. That's what they must depend on. They must realize though their forefathers and though they had been disobedient to God and had rebelled against Him, that His compassion, His compassion was their hope. And so the leaders call on the people. In Nehemiah 9, he says, Nevertheless, as they're praying to God, nevertheless, after they confessed all the sins of the people through the years, nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and compassionate God. Though they deserve to be forgotten, though they deserve to be abandoned, though they deserve to be destroyed, God, You did not do so. Why? Because You're a God of tender love. Any more than a parent would destroy their child, even though that child be rebellious and disobedient. Compassion. Jesus had this compassion. When Jesus came up to this funeral procession of this lady who was a widow and had no children except one son. And it was a funeral possession for this son, her only son. And Luke tells us that when the Lord saw her, He felt compassion for her. And He said to her, Do not weep. Jesus' heart of tender love reached out to this lady. And you know the rest of the story. He raised her son from the dead and gave him back to God is that tender, loving God today as He was in the time He spoke these words to Moses. How do you see God? Do you see Him as a stern Father who is just waiting in heaven for you to step out of line so He can zap you with the heavenly whip? Or do you see Him as a tender, compassionate, loving Father? Psalm 103 After it says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on his. It goes on to say, For he himself knows our frame, and he is mindful that we are but dust. God knows our humanity. He knows our weakness. He's not in heaven just waiting for us to step out of line one little bit so he can take the heavenly whacker and whack us. (laughs) No. He knows your heart. He knows if you love Him and want to obey Him and serve Him, He knows your frame. He knows you're but dust. He knows you're not going to live a perfect life. He sees into your heart. He sees the desire of your heart there. And when you stumble, He's there to pick you up. God's tender compassion, His tender love, His deep love is toward those victims of Katrina as well. God loves them. He doesn't hate them. He loves them. We don't understand the whys and and God, what happened? Why did it happen? But what we do know is that He's a God of compassion. And He loves these people. And He has a tender love toward them. Every one of them. We saw last week, God even loves the animals. He loves them all. Next, 
God is not only compassionate, but He is gracious. He goes on to tell Moses, and gracious. Now, the idea of this word is to bend or stoop in kindness toward an inferior. The basic meaning is to grant favor. It's that heartfelt response by someone who has something to give to someone who is in need. It's the idea of showing kindness to the needy. God has something that we need, and with a heartfelt response, He meets that need. And it is undeserved, and it is unmerited. We simply need it. That's what's gracious about it. Back in wicked King Ahaz's day, the nation of Israel, he was so wicked that he forbid the worship of God in the nation of Israel. He went so far as to bar the temple so no one could go in. And he sought to turn the nation away from God. And as a result of that, God sent judgment on them through the Arameans and the Edomites. And then after King Ahaz died, God lifted up another king, King Hezekiah. And Hezekiah's heart was tender toward God, and he wanted to restore worship to God. And so he went in and he, he took the uh, bars away from the temple, and he opened it up and he restored it. And he sought to restore the covenant that Israel had made with God. And they had not celebrated the Passover for years in disobedience to God's clear command. And so Hezekiah said, we've got to remedy this. We need to come back and we need to celebrate. And so he sent a summons throughout all the land of Israel, calling people to come back to Jerusalem and to once again, in obedience to God, celebrate the Passover. And as he sends his message throughout the nation of Israel to call a disobedient, rebellious people back to obedience and submission... He points them to the gracious character of God. Again, he says, God is a gracious God. If we'll come back, if we'll repent, I know He will meet our need for revival. And so we read in Second Chronicles chapter 30. This is what he wrote, some of what he wrote in that message he sent around to the nation. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your sons will find compassion before those who led them captive and will return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate and will not turn His face away from you if you return to Him. You see, he says, God is gracious. God meets the needs of those who are in need and we need revival. We need forgiveness. And if we'll come before God and return to Him, He is gracious. He will forgive. Jesus was all about meeting the needs of people Not because they deserved it. They did not. Purely out of grace. When He fed the 5,000, it was purely out of grace. They were hungry. They had not eaten for three days. And so Jesus met their needs. It wasn't just another miracle. It was His heartfelt response to their legitimate need. He had the ability to meet their need, and He does so. When it comes to us, our God's promises... My God shall supply all of your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ. He promises that over in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. That is His promise to us. He will meet our needs. He is there. Why? Because we deserve it? No. Because He's gracious. God 
desires to meet the needs of those victims of Katrina. God will meet their spiritual needs if they'll turn to Him. And God desires to meet their emotional and, and material needs. And He will use you and I to do that. We are His people. We cannot meet the spiritual needs of those people. Only God can do that. But what we can do is meet the emotional and physical needs. As a people of God, we're called on to share in His gracious, heartfelt response for those who are in need. And you're going to be given an opportunity today to participate in a relief offering through our Georgia Baptist Convention. And every penny will go to those who have suffered from this catastrophe. Not one penny will be used for administrative costs. And the Red Cross can't even promise you that. But the Georgia Baptist Convention can. Every penny will go to help those who are victims of this tragedy. Because God is a gracious God. He graciously offered you and I the Gospel. We didn't deserve it. But He graciously, because He knew we had a need that only He could meet, He graciously came and met that need. And then lastly today, we see that He is slow to anger. This is a Hebrew idiom. Literally, slow of anger, if you just took the Hebrew words and translated them out of the Old Testament, it would be long of nose. Long of nose. God's got a long nose. Now, how this idiom came from, it was the idea that when a person was mad, their nose kind of glowed red. Sometimes people get real angry. And it was the idea it was burning. But if somebody had a long nose, it would never burn completely. So it's just the opposite of a short fuse. You can say God has a long fuse. He doesn't lose His temper. He is slow to anger. Now, He gets angry, but He's slow to anger. It's slow. Again, when the leaders of Israel after the exile were calling the people back to God and calling them to repent and turn to God from their wicked ways that He might restore the nation and help them rebuild Jerusalem, they again referred to the sins of their forefathers and how they had rebelled against God and yet God had been slow to anger and had not forsaken them. Nehemiah 9. He says, But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. You see, God is a God who is slow to anger. He's not quick. If He was quick in anger, He would have destroyed us a long time ago. Every time you and I sinned, we'd have been dead. First time we sinned, we'd have been dead if He was short of anger. Jesus was slow to anger. Jesus went to Jerusalem and proclaimed the Word, and they continued to rebel. And He said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem! who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. That was the compassion. That was the long-suffering of Jesus. The Pharisees accused Him of having a demon. They said Jesus was demonized. 
But He did not destroy them as He could have. On the cross, when He was being beaten and taunted and ridiculed, He didn't react and destroy them, though He could have called 70,000 angels at but a whisper and destroyed humanity from the face of the earth. He didn't do so. Some of you might be thinking, oh, but what about when He went into the temple and ran out the money changers? Didn't He lose His temper then? Well, let's see. John tells us about that. It says, And He found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And notice, And He made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple. I don't know if you've ever made a scourge, made a rope, but it takes time. You cannot do that in three or four minutes. Jesus saw what was happening. But He didn't fly off the handle and just go in and run them out. He sat down. He made a cord. He made a scourge. And then He proceeded to drive them out. No, He didn't lose His temper. He was under control the whole time. God is slow to anger with us as well. He would be righteous to kill us as soon as we sin. In our day, I'm afraid His long-suffering is often seen as leniency. Because God doesn't do anything, we think, well, He doesn't care. It's okay to sin. But because God may be slow to anger and slow to dispense His hand of discipline in our lives does not mean He is not angry. does not mean He is lenient. does not mean He is looking the other way. God's patience has an end. God is not mocked. And God is slow to anger with the victims of Katrina as well. Let me share with you a verse in Amos that you may not be aware of. If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Why did this devastation come to New Orleans and the Gulf states of coastal regions of Mississippi and Alabama? Was it because of the many casinos that... Uh, or off those coasts? Was it because of the rampant sin that New Orleans is known for? Was it because two days before Katrina came, the Southern Decadence, a homosexual group, were planning a week-long celebration in New Orleans? Last year they claimed 120,000 people came to it. They paraded in the streets, doing all sorts of indecent acts. Was that the reason? Was it because New Orleans is known for its involvement in occultism and voodooism and witchcraft? When I was in college in Mississippi, Jackson, we went down to New Orleans a couple of times. And, and I remember going into this shop, which was a, a witch shop. And it's where they had books where you could buy and cast spells on people, black magic. And just, I didn't know what it was when I went in, but I immediately sensed the evilness of the place. And then discovered what it was and got out. Is it because of that? God is slow to anger, but His anger has a limit. But God's slowness to anger is His call on people to repent. What does He tell us over in Romans? Chapter 2, But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness? and tolerance, and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, 
You're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each man according to his deeds. As wicked as New Orleans is, I don't think it's any more wicked than Atlanta or New York or San Francisco. But what I do believe is that this destruction is God's call upon this nation to repent. I think it's a call, a wake-up call, when the greatest natural disaster that this nation has ever experienced takes place. We need to take notice. We know that no destruction hits a city that God has not sent it. I don't understand all the reasons behind it. I know God's compassionate and He has a tender love for those people. I know that, that God is gracious and He wants to meet their needs and He'll meet them spiritually if they're turned to Him. He'll save them if they're turned to Him in faith. I know there are Christians that are caught up in this, but that's always the case. Christians have always been caught up in the judgment of God on the unbelievers and heathens. I know God's slow to anger. And I know He would have been just to have destroyed the whole nation. Nobody can say God was unjust in this destruction. Everybody deserves worse. If you want to talk about justice. But I know God's patience, His kindness is a call to repent. He's calling on you and I to repent. He's calling on this nation to repent. Do we think we can continue to flaunt our sins before God and murder over a million unborn children every year? and flaunt immorality and sinfulness and pornography all over the, the Internet. Do we, can we think we can continue to do this and God's just going to wink and look the other way? He's calling us to repent. And God says, it's the church folks. It's you and I. We're the reason. We're the problem. He says, it's my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear their prayers from heaven. I will forgive their sins and heal their land. And we can look at the dopers and the prostitutes all we want and blame them, but God says it's at our doorstep. When the people of God get right, then the nation will get right. We're the light. They're darkness. They're just acting like what they are. Are you living in obedience to God? Is your life a life of righteousness? Are you showing the light at school, at work, wherever you are? Are you showing the righteousness of God, the love of God, His compassion, His grace? We need to wake up. Or worse is going to come. Let's pray.